Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Teras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rifath, Togarma, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanin. From these, the coastal people spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteka. The sons of Ramah, Sheva, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty warrior before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Erhobat-ir, Kala, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kalsuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham, or Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, of children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan, or Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheflef, Hazamraveth, Jarah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheva, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. 
And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's trustworthy, that it's true, that it's history, that it's our history. And that you teach us, Lord, from these people that lived thousands of years ago, you teach us about ourselves, about our sin, about your righteousness and your mercy. Lord, you tell us that pride begoes before destruction, but humility comes before honor. Father, help us to humble ourselves before you, that you receive all the praise you deserve. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we read scripture, we often read with this question in our mind. Why? Why does this matter to me? And I think that's actually a great question. Why does this matter to me? When we read the Bible, we don't study scripture merely for objective information, like just some facts, but we read it for personal transformation. We read because we want to be changed by God. But before we bring the Bible into our world, we have to enter the world of the Bible. We have to ask, why did God write this? What is it, well, why is this important to him? Why, what would the original readers have thought when they read this for the first time? We need to answer that, those kind of questions first, and then we can ask, okay, why does this matter to me? And I bring this up because when we read Genesis 10, we can sit there thinking, I don't care, right? All these names that are hard to pronounce. You probably laughed about it when you were studying it last week with David or Pastor David, right? Why is this in here? What's the point? I can't even pronounce these names. I don't know who these people are. All scripture, so 2 Timothy 3.16, is profitable. And all scripture includes Genesis chapter 10. So there's gold to mine here. There's something to learn even from genealogies where we're not exactly sure how it relates to us. We just have to push a little bit, sometimes a lot. So let's take a deep breath. Let's dive right in and we'll get into Genesis chapter 10. First, the cultures of the world. Genesis 10 functions as a long preface to Genesis chapter 11. And 11 will slow way down, but in 10, we're going to go through really quickly, okay? I'm not going to read the whole chapter again. Uh, those names are hard for me to read. Instead, look at verse 32, the summary verse, the last verse of the chapter. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So this chapter is saying, okay, from one family, Noah, there became lots of families. In fact, there's about 70 names, 70 families in this chapter. And it breaks down those 70 names into three branches. The family of Japheth, the family of Ham, and the family of Seth, or Shem. They have family of Shem. Or Shem. Verse 2 to 5 describes Japheth's family. They predominantly populated lands to the north of the promised land, that's north of Israel. Think of like modern-day Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Verses 6 to 20 describes Ham's family, describes including the cursed Canaan, and one particular man named Nimrod, who we'll talk about later. They populated particularly land to the south, places like modern-day Egypt and modern-day Libya. And finally, verses 21 to 31 describes Shem's family, the chosen line. They populated primarily both to the east and the west of the promised land, particularly modern-day Turkey to the east, to the west, and modern-day Iraq to the east. Now, I have read lots of pages from Bible scholars that go into every single one of these names. They go through ancient literature of the Babylonians, the Sumerians, uh, the Egyptians, to track down more about these people, where they came from, any like, written records we found about them. Today, we're not going to do that, okay? We're not going to do that, thankfully. Instead, 
I just want to give you one big question. I want you to find one big question from this chapter. Look with me at three verses in this chapter. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. From these, the Kosan peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. Jump down to verse 20. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Jump down to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. You hear it? Languages, lands, clans, nations, people groups. Here's a question we should be asking. Where in the world did all those groups come from? Where did they all come from? Did one of the, I don't know, sons of Japheth, he just decided one day, you know, I'm going to like speak a new language. Um, from now on, we're all speaking Pig Latin, Ixnay on the Upitste, uh, Elohe, the Aimne is Abbe. No. To translate, Nick's the stupid, hello, my name is Bob. Um, no, okay, no one's going to just change the language like this on a whim. Today, you speak English, that's why you can listen to me, right? Tomorrow, you're not going to decide, okay, I'm going to speak, speak Portuguese for the rest of my life. You know, I'm going to go learn Swahili, and all my friends are going to now speak Swahili, and we're going to change languages, right? That, that doesn't happen. That's how that works. So what's going on? We can ask the same question that the first generation that was reading this book asked. What happened? Where did all these nations come from? What cataclysmic event changed the destiny of the world forever? What world-changing thing birthed all of this diversity? Answer, pride. Point two, the sin of pride, man's rebellion. Look at verse one of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Chapter 11 transports us back to before there are languages, clans, nations, and peoples. It says, okay, this is going to explain how chapter 10 happened, how one world culture became thousands. Verse 2, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Shinar is located in ancient Babylonia um, near the Euphrates River, today modern-day Iraq, uh, near Kuwait, if you're interested. This is the location of the birthplace of the kingdoms of humanity. Jump up to me with chapter t- to chapter 10, verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8. I said we come back to Nimrod, right? Nimrod is that special guy that got a few verses in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. Cush, father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So this Nimrod guy, he's the first mighty warrior king of the earth. And he built a kingdom. And you know where he started? In Shinar. In his first city, Babel. So this is a starting place of great civilizations. You heard of, you know, ancient Samaria, ancient Babylonia, the Assyrians, at least the Egyptians, right? Anyone follow me? You've heard of the Egyptians before? Nod, pyramids, mummies, all that. All of the ancient civilizations, the great ones of our history, start here with Nimrod. So this is the beginning of great kingdoms, the beginning of conquest. And 
in many ways, the beginning of worldwide pride. At Babel was the first mega project. Look at verse three. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. At this point in history, fired bricks and bitumen, that's like tar, think of like really sticky stuff to glue things together. That's cutting edge technology. I mean, us today, we would kind of think that's primitive, right? But to them, cutting edge technology. To transpose it to our time, it would be like, like self-building spaceships powered by AI that will bring us to, to Neptune or something. Like this is, this is crazy stuff, right? Beyond normal technology. It's the best of the best. What are all these people doing with this technology? Verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make for ourselves and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what do they want? They want a great city, the really tall tower that goes all the way to heaven. Why? That they might make a name for themselves in order to disobey the will of God. Look at that phrase at the end of verse four, right? It says, lest, so we should do this thing. We should build this city. We should build this tower. We should make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, lest we will be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be separated. They don't want to split out. They don't want to scatter. Now, why is that bad? Why is that bad? Look back with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is before sin. This is God's commission, his command, his mission for his people. Chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Hear that? Fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So his will was not just that they would be humanity all together in one little spot, but that would be humanity over all of the earth. Not just Shinar, but everywhere. Not just one little place, but all the continents, all the land, all the islands. His will that they would be little K kings and little Q queens as his image bearers, ruling the whole world, beautifying it, taking care of it, tending to its creatures, making an environment full of life and blessing and peace. That was his will for them. That was his command to them. And what did they do? They said, no, we're going to stick right here together in this little itty bitty city and make ourselves king here. Their intention, their plan was against the will of God. And it's not like they didn't know. Noah gave this command, God gave this command to Noah right after the flood. He would have told all of his descendants, but they chose to disobey. They didn't want to stay in one place. They wanted to stay in one place. They didn't want to fill the earth. And Epheth, that, that would have been bad enough, right? But look with me at verse three. Look at me at chapter 11, uh, verse four. Chapter 11, verse four. What are they doing? They're building a city for who? Ourselves, right? Let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And who are they making a name for? Let us make a name for ourselves. They're the center of the universe. They want to make themselves glorious. They want to exalt themselves over all the earth. They would sing, praise me from whom all blessings flow. Praise me, all creatures here below. Or I am so great. 
I am so mighty, there's nothing I cannot do. That was their song. What is this? It's the crisis that changed the destiny of the world. It's the sin that burst all of the languages and tribes and peoples and nations from one family. It's pride. It's pride. Now, when I say pride, I don't mean in the sense that we can say to someone, oh, I'm really proud of you because uh, you graduated middle school, or I'm really proud of you because you won this game. I'm not, I'm not talking about the kind of pride. Right? When I say pride, I mean the sin of pride. I mean arrogant, conceited, haughty, big-headed, selfish rebellion against God. Pride is having a really exalted view of yourself rather than an accurate, humble view of yourself. Pride is the refusal to submit to God and his rule. It's the rejection of his authority, his rights, and it's asserting that you're in charge, not God. In English, the middle letter of pride is I, and that's fitting because pride is really all about you, isn't it? Pride believes I'm better. I'm more important. I should be first. I should be great. I deserve good things. I need to look awesome. Or as Genesis 11:4 says, come, let's make a name for ourselves. To put it into our language, to our, our modern lingo, these post-flood humans are saying this, come on guys, let's do something amazing. Let's be absolutely famous. Let's put ourselves on the map. We'll be influencers. We'll be, get millions of views. We have billions of followers. Let's write the biggest hits, win the greatest rewards, win the applause of all the world. Let's make ourselves great. And then we will be like God, exalted to the heavens. That's what pride says. All the way in the garden, in chapter three, Adam fell. Why? Because he wanted to be like God. In chapter 11, things are still the same. They want to be like God. Pride is one of those sins that is in some ways more terrible than every other sin. Uh, one theologian said that it's pregnant with all other kinds of sins. And here's what I mean. Sin attaches itself to all these other things and makes those things sin. Look at verse three. These people, they took bricks and mortar, right? That's science, technology, that's human ingenuity. They took them as their instruments. Verse three, come, let us make us bricks. And sorry, and then verse three, come, let us make bricks. And verse four, come, let us build ourselves, for ourselves. That's cooperation and teamwork. So they take science, technology, cooperation, teamwork, and what do they do? They make it their tools to feed their desire for pride. They make it their tools to sin. Of course, technology and science and cooperation and teamwork, those are not inherently evil, right? You use lots of technology. You're using a pen right now. That's technically technology. Those are not inherently evil things. But when pride gets a hold of them, it twists and corrupts and uses what should be instruments for good into instruments for evil. Pride takes good things, corrupts them, and makes them not about God, but about you. So if you study in school, not to honor God with your work, not to make him look great in the world, but to brag about your GPA to your friends, that's not God-glorifying diligence. That's pride. 
If you practice your soccer skills, not to serve your teammates, not to do your best and exercise the body that God has given to you, but in order to boast in your achievements and your trophies, that's not God glorifying stewardship, that's pride. If you do your chores at home, not to obey God's command to honor your parents, but instead to use it as leverage to, I don't know, demand some kind of reward from them, that's not God, that's not God glorifying service, that's pride. Again, pride corrupts good things like learning and exercise and service and makes life not about loving God, not about loving other people, but about loving you. Pride puts you at the center of the universe. Pride's like an ink that stains your hands and then stains everything else it touches. Pride is like a cancer that grows and consumes and will want to take over all of your body and destroy you. Pride is like a stench that you cannot wash out. It's an infestation that won't quit. It's a virus that won't die. Pride is so wicked. It takes even the best things and corrupts them. When your Bible reading is not about learning about God, not about learning about how to love him and serve him, but about learning more than your church friends so you can brag about your knowledge. When your prayers for others are not about actually running to your father for help, but they're about using fancy words and sounding really religious and making yourself look important. When serving at church is not to love the people for whom Jesus died, but about showing, about, but about showing off your skills or getting out of going to Sunday service or displaying your dedication, you know that even your religion has been corrupted by pride. Pride takes our best works even our greatest attempts to love God and love people and makes them filthy. Isaiah 64, verse six says this. We have all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. I'll say that again. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This is what pride does. It makes our best things into even unimaginably dirty things. Everything you do is laced with sin. So the proud, sinful world said, come on, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's rebel against God. Let's live our way, not God's way. Let's put ourselves at the universe instead of him. Come on, we'll be great. It'll be awesome. But scripture says this, Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, our sin. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. First John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And a verse that's repeated three times in the Bible, James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud because grace to the humble. I mean, do you want your life to be miserable? Do you want destruction in your life? Do you want God to be your enemy? Do you want every day of your life to be plagued with sin no matter where you turn? It's really easy. Just be proud. And in fact, just stay like you are because we are born proud. We're born infested with Adam's disease of pride. Unless by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we remain that way. And our pride actually grows even worse. 
oftentimes when we think about being proud, we think about how we treat others, right? We think about we refuse to ask for help because we're proud, or we refuse to love someone who we think is lesser than us, or ridicule other people for not being, I don't know, as smart as us, or as fast as us, or whatever. We brag, right? We think of pride as a horizontal thing between people. And it's true, that kind of pride is also sin. But in Genesis 11, mankind's pride is not against fellow man, but against their God, right? It's against their God. They want to build a tower up to heaven to be like God. Ultimately, at the end of the day, pride is always a rejection of God, not just of people. So who do you think is wise? You or God? Obviously, we know God is. But then, do you ask him what he thinks about school, about working hard, about listening to your parents, about gender and sexuality, about the environment, about everything? Do you ask God what he thinks? And when you find out what he thinks from his word, do you believe him? Or whose approval is better, your friends or your God's? Do you live for his pleasure, his joy, knowing that he's going to give you the true reward, that he's the one who's always watching, who's rooting for you, who wants you to love him above all things? Or do you lie to your friends because you're afraid of what they'll think? Or do you stay really, really quiet, hoping that they don't expose you for what you really believe? Do you believe what John 15, 5 says? Apart from you, Christ, I can do nothing. I'll say it again. John 15, 5 says, apart from Jesus, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. If we really believe that, if we really truly believe that, praying would not be hard. We'd always be praying, God help me. God help me to do this. God help me with this. God help me with this. Everything we'd be asking all day long, Lord Jesus, help me. Apart from you, I can do nothing. At the root of most sin, maybe even all sin, is pride. It's us trying to live without God. It's us trying to be God, to try to kick him off his throne in order that we would sit there instead. With all the world raising their anger fist against God in this prideful way, what would he do? God opposes the proud. Point three, the judgment of God is humiliation. The humiliation of man. Verse five. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So the narrative now shifts from the perspective of man to the perspective of God. It looked like to people, they're building this great and mighty tower with this top in the heavens, right? But God's like, whew, what are those little puny humans down there? What are they doing? So he comes down. The tallest building in the world is in Dubai. Uh, it's called the Burj Khalifa. It's 2,127 feet tall. Uh, 2,717 feet tall. Uh, if you like meters, it's 828 meters. Space, there's not really an agreement on this, but the closest line of space that people talk about is 1,000 kilometers or 62 miles above the surface of the Earth. So if you do some math, you take the tallest building that we've ever built divided by how tall space is, it is less than 1%. So the tallest building we've ever built is less than 1% to, quote-unquote, where God lives. But of course, the Tower of Babel was way shorter than the Burj Khalifa. They didn't have steel. And, of course, God doesn't live in, like, I don't know, 
near Mars or something. He lives beyond the heavens. He's beyond the physical space. He's of the highest heavens. He exceeds physical reality. The point's this. There's no way in the world you can build a little bitty bitty tower and get all the way to God, right? You'd, you'd much, you might as well try to jump over the entire Grand Canyon. You might as well try to swim to Hawaii from here. You might as well try to breathe without air. You might as well try to save your soul by being good. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. That's the insanity of pride. We try to be God, but it'll never happen. It's impossible. So God comes down to see this little itty bitty science experiment that people are doing, this worldwide rebellion. And he, he says, it doesn't even get close to where I actually dwell. But it still is dangerous. Not to God, but to humanity. Look at verse six. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they'll have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So united as one people now, what do they want to do? And what are they going to do? Sin. Sin. Remember, remember what God said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? He said, before the flood, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen here. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The flood had not changed man's heart. Now that man is united, if God let man do what he wants, man would only do evil continually to the max. So what does he do? Verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So by miracle, he makes up their language. And it's not like every single person had a different language. It's not like they're like, I don't know, a thousand people equals a thousand different languages, right? Some people, some group had the same language. Maybe it was by family, maybe it was by job. I don't know, maybe it was by age. I have no idea, right? The text doesn't say. But we do know is that the groups found each other. They probably relieved at least, you know, five people in the world understood their language. And then they realized we can't live here. We can't build the city anymore because I don't understand these people. Let's leave. Let's go. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. What they had feared so much in their pride, being scattered across the earth, God did. God did. Their rebellion turned into God's triumph. Their failure led to the successful fulfillment of the mandate to fill all the earth. In verse 9, therefore the city's name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now the word in our Bible is Babel, uh, forms a pun with our English word Babel, B-A-B-B-L-E. You know what a baby does when they're trying to talk? They just like, ba ba ba. They don't really make sense, right? Babel means that to the listener, it, mean, it doesn't mean anything. There's, there's no intelligible meaning behind it. So, the tower of human pride, the peak of our arrogance, the culmination of technology and cooperation and science and teamwork became a monument to hu human humiliation. To human humiliation. A reminder that God mocks the attempts of man to be like him. Yeah, that's cute. All it is is you babbling and making no sense at all. Because God opposes the proud. If you fight him, you will lose. If you try to win against him, you will be destroyed. 
God opposes the proud. His plans will always come to pass, not man's. Again, I said, the verse, God is opposed to the proud, because grace to the humble, that appears in the Bible three times. That's pretty important then, right? If it was once, that'd be enough. If it's three times, you know, we better pay attention. How should we respond to that? Humility, right? Humility. The humble are those who bow before God and pray, not my will, but your will, God, be done. Not my will, not what I want, not my desires, not my plans, but your plans, God. May you do your plans. Whatever you want is actually what I want. It's so much better to live life when you're on God's team rather than against him. You will lose if you play against God. You will lose if you try to defeat God. Much better to leave your pride behind, to get off your throne, and join God's kingdom rather than you trying to win your own kingdom. One more thing, though. Before we end the book of Genesis, or our series on the book of Genesis, jump forward with me all the way to chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. I wish we had time to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We do not. Uh, if we were to stay in Genesis, we would probably all die before I finished. So we're not going to do that series, okay? <laughs> we're going to stop here. Instead, look at me at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is a really famous verse. You probably know it. It's Joseph talking to his brothers after they have sold him to slavery, after he has been accused unjustly and put in jail, how he suffered, and how finally God has restored him, made him almost pharaoh over all of the nation of Egypt. This is what Joseph says to his brothers. Uh, chapter 50, let's ch start in chapter 50, verse 17. Uh, chapter 50, verse 16. So they sent a message to his Joseph saying, your, brother, your father gave this commandment before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. His brothers are saying, sorry. We're so sorry we sold you into slavery. Joseph wept when he they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are today. What was their intention in selling Joseph into slavery? Sin. Evil. You should never sell your sibling into slavery. You should never sell anyone into slavery. But what did God do with it? And what was God's intention? It was good. It was good. That's always how God has worked since the fall of man into sin. He uses evil deeds of men and evil motives, even the most terrible of sin, to accomplish good. Babel was thousands of years ago. And from that sin of pride, languages came out. There are 8.1 billion people on the earth today-ish who speak over 7,000 different languages, living in just under 200 countries in every corner of the world. If you go to the jungles of Brazil, or if you go to the rainforest of Brazil, if you go to the islands of the Pacific, the deserts of Saudi Arabia, the glaciers of Greenland, the forests of China, you will find people like us, all made in the image of God, but all really different too. Gloriously designed to do one thing together, 
to worship the Lord in their language. So the diversity of humanity that God created at Babel was a result of their sin. That was their judgment. But the diversity of humanity created at Babel was also designed to give God greater praise so that God would not be praised just from one language, but from thousands. Not just from one kind of person, but from hundreds of thousands of different kinds of people. And look at our church, just off the top of my head, we have Japanese, Mexican, Korean, Anglo, Thai, Nigerian, Chinese, Pan-European, Nicaraguan, Argentinian, Hawaiian, Filipino, Belarusian, Brazilian, Indian, and I've been so long in America, just calling American people. That's just our church, our small church, in a small place in the middle of the, in the world called Southern California. And yet we all, as saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, sing with one voice to the same God. Together we testify that different kinds of people deserve, different kinds of people should praise the Lord, that Jesus didn't die for one kind of person, like just the Hebrews, or just the Jews, or just the Mongolians. He died for all the earth, every people group, so that every language would sing to him forever. That's what John sees in, Gen in Revelation chapter 7. He says, I behold, uh, behold, I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What language do you think they're speaking? Thousands of different ones, all saying the same thing to our God. This is the trajectory of history. All of humanity worshiping the Lord together as one. All these different kind of names in Genesis chapter 10, right? Names that I can't say, names that you can't say, people that we know something about, people we know mostly nothing about. All these kinds of people worshiping the Lord because he is worthy to be praised from every kind of person. Sinful man meant Babel for evil, but God meant it for good. Think of your life then, everything in your life, everything, even if it's sinful, even if it's wrong, even if you're hurt, people meant it for evil. You might have meant it for evil, but God can use even that for good. Let's pray. Father, we long to see all the peoples praise you every tribe, tongue, people, and nation all over the earth, people that look like us, people that don't look like us, people that are totally different, all loving and worshiping the same God because Jesus died for them, because Jesus purchased them by his blood. I pray, Lord, for us here, whatever culture we come from, whatever we look like, whatever our background, Lord, that you would show us we need a savior, a savior from our pride, a savior who breaks our pride and gives us a heart of humility. Would you do that, Lord, for the praise of your name among all the nations. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.